This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today I'm talking to Peter Quinn about his novel, The Banished Children of Eve, a novel of the Civil War in New York. How are you, Peter? I'm good, David. Thank you. This is a really interesting book. I picked it up really accidentally. And and this is kind of interesting because in the pandemic, we haven't been able to go out much to go to bookstores, but I happened to be in a bookstore a couple of months ago for the first time in a long time, wandering around, um, you know, just looking at books as one does. And, you know, every once in a while, a book will fall into your hand. It will jump off the shelf and you, you end up buying it. Um, and you know, it was a, Barnes and Noble store, which was fairly new. And I don't know why they were carrying this book in that particular store, but it was really nice to discover this. Um, and, you know, I'm interested in, I'm always interested in historical fiction. Right. Um, but this book was originally published in 1994 by Viking. Right. And has, it's been out of print for all this time. Is that correct? No, it, it was been, it's been in print since 1994. Viking had it in print, and then uh, Peter Mayer, we were talking about, who uh, was the CEO of um, Viking Penguin, got his own imprint, and he republished it. And now it's being republished by Fordham. It's been republished. So it hasn't been out of print since it came out in 1994. Ah, okay. Well, it was 27 years. I'm really glad to have found it. I mean, I think, um, so it takes place basically in 1863, uh, in New York, and I had known, you know, a little bit of that um, story of the um, draft riots. Um, right. You know, that's probably what most of us know about uh, what was going on there. But of course, all of the reasons why it happened and what was what it was like to be there um, is what I I think in a lot of ways your novel um, takes on. And um, it was I I love that there are the characters are so diverse. Um, different kinds of people. You've got um, Irish, black, um, maybe sort of, as they used to call them, the true Americans there. Right, right. Um, right. The, the, um, who had then considered, you know, the native born. I mean, obviously we right. still experience this today. And that that is another reason why I thought this was really interesting because yeah. the, the story of the Irish and um, their relations to... Um, the people who were here before them, people who came after, um, right. to black people throughout the book is is very reminiscent of what we go through today. Right. Well, one of the things about the Irish, you now there's a book, How the Irish Became White, uh, which made a big splash in academia. But, you know, the Irish were white, but they were something else because the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the 19th century, almost important as race was religion. And the Irish were Catholics, and they had a reputation in the British Isles as, you know, subversive, rebellious. Um, their religion was totally foreign. It was regarded as superstition. So the first thing that alienated them when they came to America, America was a Protestant country, and it had never been confronted by this um, foreign religion. Um, you know, I think about that with Muslims now. They talk about the Muslim religion. Well, the Catholic church religion wasn't very far away in consideration of 19th century American Protestants. Yeah, no, I think that's I, I think that's true. Now, it, it, one of the things that, that I was thinking about also, though, was that um, there were Germans who had arrived yeah, right. from around the same time as in right. the 1840s coming from the 
um, post-socialist revolutions in in right. Germany and Austria, and some of them were Catholic, some of them were right. Lutheran. Did they also have a similar conflict, or did they? You know, was it also partly that the British um, have? You know, uh, I don't know how to say it exactly, but you know, the the relationship between Ireland and Great Britain is is kind of fraught. Also, did they, and that carried over here. But was it different for the Germans? Well, the Germans weren't really being. You know, there was an intellectual class that was forced out in eighteen forty eight. But the um, main body of German immigration were immigrants who wanted to come, and the Irish immigration came as a result of the potato famine in Ireland, which one of the most devastating famines actually in human history. There were eight million people in Ireland, a million died from the famine, and two million left. Uh, 2.1 million, 2 million came to America. So these weren't just normal immigrants. The country had never seen people like this before, disorganized, impoverished, uh, coming into cities. They were from one of the most primitive agricultural situations in Europe. You know, they didn't even use plows. They used hoes to do this potato farming subsistence. And suddenly this mass group of peasants found themselves in the most fast, rapidly industrializing country in the world. With no experience, they had no experience of town life. Uh, very few Irish people had been to Dublin. The rule in the Irish countryside was people didn't really go three miles behind the, uh, away from their, where they were born. And suddenly they're 3,000 miles away with no skills, no money, no capital, and a foreign religion. So, it, you know, the Germans came at the same time. It was a totally different immigration. Right. And they came, they're rural people who, you know, millions of them stayed in cities because their uh, experience of agriculture was disastrous. So you have to remember, like, immigrants usually cause problems when they come to cities. It's going on all over the world. What happened with the Irish has happened in China. Um, every place that vast numbers of rural people leave the countryside and come to cities is problematic. And the Irish was especially problematic because what they were coming from. You know, they would just, the thing was about the Irish was they were disorganized. They had no central organizations. They were, it was almost like boat people. Mm. Well, and you, you, you talk about, and I think in one of, one of your characters comes here via Canada. Right. Um, which is like a tortured experience. It's just one of yeah. the most painful things I've read in a long right. time. Um, well, they closed the American ports in the winter of 1847 because the Irish were bringing diseases, they thought. And they, you know, they had cholera. Uh, so they put all these ships came into Gros Eel in the St. Lawrence River. And the proportion of people who died on those ships was like 20%, which is pretty, you know, that didn't happen any other immigrations. And they stumble off those boats with no destination, with no relatives to await them, like many immigrants had. And the ones that could uh, made it to America. There were no immigration laws in America at the time, so they stumbled over the border. So, it, in fact, people could just arrive. Yeah, they could, you know, if they arrived, if you arrived in ports um, like New York and uh, Boston, there were quarantines for people who were sick. Uh, but there were no immigration papers. There were no official depots for immigrants. The first one was 1855 in New York at Castle Garden. Up to then, you know, the country wanted immigrants up to then until it kind of got Irish immigrants, and there was this reconsideration of, can you just let these people in? You know, it's interesting because there were colonists, and then pioneers, and then immigrants. And there are th three different categories. Nobody objects to the colonists. Right. Nobody objects to the pioneers. Immigrant is a kind of a loaded term. Sometimes we like immigrants, sometimes we don't. We usually like immigrants about two generations after they get here. 
Right. Well, but of course, if we peel that back a little bit, there actually were people who didn't like the colonists. Those were the indigenous mm. people who were here and right. faced them first. And, oh, yeah. you know, right. and of course, the <laughs> colonists came here with this notion, uh, a created notion that, well, we got here, we can we can take this, you know, the Pope, in the case of the Spanish, the Pope said they could, in the case of England, the King said they could have it. So they just, yeah, the Europeans, you know, arrived on Mars. It's interesting because the, uh, Irish were colonized themselves. You know, the, uh, Jamestown plantation in 1617, the first English plantation was in Ulster, the Ulster plantation. And it was to secure the province of Ulster for Protestants against, you know, Catholic peasantry. So they had experience of being driven off the land and colonized. That's and, true, uh, yeah. You know, it was the same project of Jamestown Plantation. Also, there was the idea of planting British colonies around the world. And, you know, one was for the slave trade. The other was um, taking land. It was, you know, it was a vast European, which is another thing about, you know, people, this thing about, um, I don't know, what do they call it? Critical race history, um, which I don't really understand but you know there is a history european history that's pretty brutal oh it is well but they what they were doing was i mean on a kind of mechanistic description of it they had overpopulated england right and they they needed to go out and bring in more um goods and and right. um, natural resources because they'd kind of overdone you know they, t- they right. it's an extractive economy they took out you know they got a lot of the the best stuff out of the ground that they could then they had to go out and find more and right. they also had more people there than right. they could support so they had to send them out in the world uh, yeah. you know it was actually a pretty um in a way a brilliant uh, right. enterprise not one that i particularly celebrate but you have to under you know you kind of understand why it happened and it was very effective we've gone to the caribbean a couple of times every time i look around i say you know the native population here was exterminated and people think well the caribbean black every one of those people was transported from africa that's right three three million people in chains i mean it's such an amazing thing and you don't think about it it's like oh this has always been black no it wasn't black 400 years ago no, that's true. They they exterminate. It was a process of extermination and displacement, right. Right. and you know by 1863, now you're looking at um, even by then that's 250 years of right. a colonized country. By then, right. you know, pretty much having romanticized its beginnings and right. created a myth. The mythology of the founding of the United States was fully right. in place. Um, right. And it w- it's just so interesting to think about New York City as this kind of cauldron of right. relations yeah. between different groups of people. And I, I noticed in the biography of you that you had worked as an advisor on the movie, The Gangs of New York. Right. And of course, that comes into, you know, that's part of the history behind uh, the story in Banished Children of Eve. Right. It's a terrible movie, by the way. <laughs> it, it gets everything wrong. I mean, you know, at one point he asked me for a memo about what I found wrong historically with uh, the movie. And I kind of did like a three-page memo that said essentially it did everything wrong. Uh, there are so many things in that that are just so far off base. But I said to Scorsese, you don't make historical films. This is in a, uh, this is in a, a documentary. You do operas. I mean, all those films are essentially operas. Raging Bull. Um, 
Goodfellows. Uh, they're all, you know, over the top, and the music, um, Taxi Driver. So I said, I don't know what you're worried about. <laughs> you're, you, you don't get the history right in an opera. Right, and it, you, that's exactly right. I don't, you, we don't expect that to be a re, It doesn't have right. to be realistic. Most movies aren't. Um, you know, they. In fact, most movies. Just if you know the history of any movie that takes place at any time in history, you know that it's wrong. Um, right, right. It's, it's never right. Um, well, you know, I got that complaint about Banished Children that, uh, well, this didn't, this character didn't really exist, and this is wrong. And um, I would always tell people, I'm a liar. It says on the front of the book, novel. <laughs> <laughs> a novel is. Always, right. If you want to write letters to historians, go ahead. But you know. The novel is a, is a territory of the imagination. Right. I mean, I, I invented these people. Some of them I invented. Some are real. And they were real in my head. They're not real in the outside world. And they can go places and do things that might not have, you know, people might not have done, but I believe they did. And that was what really interested me. You know, I've read books on the draft rights, and they were always the uber history of vast movements and things. And I said, what really interests me is the under history, the under history, because my ancestors came in the famine to New York. Uh, and I knew nothing about them. I had no relics, no furniture, no, not even a pair of rosary beads or a story. It was a big blank. And originally I set out, I had studied to get a PhD in history at Fordham. And I set out to write a history of the famine immigration in New York. And I suddenly realized, or it took me time to realize, I can't reach these people. They left no records. They wrote nothing. And my ancestors are among them, and they're just the faceless masses. And I said to myself, what was it like to be alive in New York? What was it like to be on the streets? What did it smell like and look like? And I said, I don't want this uber history. You know, I want to be with these people through the riots and see it through their eyes. And you know, that's what I set out to do. And I had never written a novel before, so it wasn't easy. But uh, I spent 10 years writing it to get underneath the history. Yeah. I wanted to write like I was in the history rather than above it describing it. And I wasn't. Inter I was interested in these people, these characters. How did they make it through? What things did they do wrong? And the other thing about writing a historical novel, you have to put out of your head what, what happens in the end. You know, you have to treat like there's no. These people don't know the future. They don't know that the North is going to win the Civil War. This is right around Gettysburg. They don't know how New York is going to develop. They don't know other immigrants are going. It's just it, they live in the moment like we do now with Afghanistan and all the stuff going in the world. It could all turn out differently in two years. So it's to live in the, in the unknown. It's to live in the present with the future unknown. And if you're writing about the past, that can be hard to do. Yeah, I would think that. Well, it is hard to do because you have to suspend your ab. You know, your kind of um, knowledge and right. the, and the and the perspective that you have is based on there. You're sort of like the all-knowing narrator if you allow, them, but you don't want that to happen. Right. So it, yeah, it, yeah, uh, that I I think it it is challenging, but I think that's one of the reasons why, um, I mean the you're you got deeply into these into the period. So what the, I think what confuses readers potentially is that it's so historically vivid, you know, right. that you've captured so much of the speaking tonality. Well, we think we we don't know what they really talk like, but you know, it it's you sound like you're in that period. You feel like you're in it. I think you did a great job of evoking um the 1860s as we might have met, you know, as we kind of hope they were, maybe imagine they were pretty gritty and pretty 
you know, pretty raw and um, in some ways a very unpleasant period. Um, oh, it was, it was the third world city in a lot of ways for the poor. It was, you know, the, the uh, infant mortality rate was up there with like Calcutta in the 19th century. Yeah, and uh, also, and the and the the depth of um, violence right. um, between, um, I mean, individuals also, but also between groups of people is pretty palpable, you know, pretty powerful and a little scary. I spent six and a half years doing the research because I really wanted to find out I didn't want to write superficially. So one of the things was I read all the newspapers. I went to the old newspaper division of Public Library on 11th Avenue, and my wife and kids would be away in the summer. I'd just go after work and work, work, see. And there's so much of the detail, the, the nitty-gritty, what you're talking about. But one of the, if you're a writer, I think one of the things is you look for a lot of excuses not to write. And one of the best excuses is research. So, I got so buried in the research that I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to get out of this. And I was on the newspaper division. It was the summer, and the air conditioning was broken. And I just finished reading the, the newspapers for the Civil War. And I said, you know, now I'll read all Harper's magazines. And then I said, either I'm going to write this book or I'm not. I can research. The research is so fascinating. And the more you get into it, the more questions you ask. One of the things that fascinated me was the, um, you know, the unwashed masses, the idea of water, which we take for granted which New York was starved with water to the Croton Reservoir. And there was a hookup fee, so the poor couldn't hook up to the water, and the rich could, so it was um, the unwashed masses. If you go to the Tenement Museum, which is a great place to visit uh, on uh, Delancey Street, um, you see they have privies in the back. With, you know, four-story tenement. People had to walk down to these privies. There were no bathrooms in the houses. And the water taps were next to the privies, which is a formula for cholera. Yeah. Uh, so just that, you know, they have these backlot tenements which don't even exist anymore. You walk down an alley, and there was a tenement behind the tenement. There were no housing laws. The first housing laws came out of the draft rights. So water was a premium. You couldn't bathe. You know, and you also, you know, the fourth floor of the tenement was actually occupied by an Irish family that had nine children, seven died. Hmm. Uh, and if you wanted to cook in the summer, you, you had a coal stove. Uh, so it would be 98 degrees to be on the top floor, and if you wanted to cook food, you had to put a coal stove on. So it's unimaginable what people went through. Oh, no, I've, I've thought about that a lot because my grandparents grew up on the Lower East Side in Alphabet City in the mm. 1890s. Right. And, th you know, that's only 30 years later. Right. It was probably better, but it not a whole lot better. No. And I've thought, you think a lot about just the things they went through. I, I think about, you know, I have other relatives who grew up in Minnesota in the <laughs> 1890s in yeah. like an outhouse when it's 30 below. I mean, I you know, right, you just, know. it's unfathomable what people who just 150 years ago yeah. uh, were going through on a daily basis. And yes, I mean, right. there were people who had running water you i think you have one character i love him the charles bedford yeah, yeah uh, who, he was rich that was right <laughs> he was rich but he he got there from being poor i mean he started with nothing right. oh yeah um and he's not exactly a lovely guy but he does have these facilities that were just beginning to be possible right. for people who had money right. the it's like upstairs downstairs you know <laughs> like yeah, yeah it's classic and well one um, of the things i have i'm sitting on a toilet uh, with, with you, you just pull the, the rope to make it cold, but 
it's a long chapter, and he's imagining things and remembering. So he's on the toilet for a long time. But uh, one critic said I was the first um, writer to give a character hemorrhoids. <laughs> <laughs> but that was when I, you know, I spent, it just came to me. I don't know. I, was, I look, I was saying, well, how do people live what they do? And I looked into this water thing, and it took, I was studying the water system for New York for like a month. Right. I it, live by the aqueduct, the, 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 croton, the old Croton aqueduct, and every time I go over it, I said, nobody along this aqueduct or very few people understand what it was and how critical it was to the development of New York. It's just right. we kind of forget about it like we forget about a lot of history. Well, that's true. I mean, I, I, I have a friend who wrote a, the, a, a historical, a not a nonfiction about the water system in Los Angeles. Very similarly, okay. without yeah. the water, there is no right. city. And that's right. true of New York, Los Angeles, right. both of them. Uh, I mean, unimaginable to think about how many people were in New York City in 1860s and the the infrastructure issues for them, um, right. just unimaginable. But it was, uh, you know, without that water, you don't have a city. Right, which I think Phoenix is finding out. <laughs> well, and it's Las Vegas, Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Not a good um, idea to build cities in the desert. Yeah. Well, they did. And, you know, it's just they never imagined that the water would go away. Right. Um, I guess nobody thinks about that when there's, when you're, and of course, you don't have to when you're building it um, as long as you can get paid. Right. The other thing about writing a book, I remember I, I took my son to Gettysburg because I had visited Gettysburg with my father, and there were all these reenactors there, which I found interesting, you know. People want to do that. It's fine. Dressed up in period costumes with muskets on the battlefield. And I said, it's really interesting to me that they reenact Gettysburg. And a week later after Gettysburg was the most significant riot in American history, where troops from Gettysburg were called back to put down the riot, which went on for a week. And it's one thing of America, we never reenact the draft riot. <laughs> you never see reenactors on the streets. I mean, the mobs essentially took over the city for a week. They beat back the police, they beat back the militia, and it wasn't until the professional soldiers came in that they put down this riot. It's one of the few riots in American history where uh, the white officials put down white crowds. So was the character, you, you, I, I can't remember the guy's name, who was the, um, he was Irish, who was uh, um, given the civilian, or the civilian role of running the draft in New York, was he based well, he on... he was a actually, yeah. Robert Nugent, he was an officer. He had been wounded at, uh, right. Frederick, at Fredericksburg. And it, I, th I think, you know, they put an Irishman ahead of the draft because they figured it would be more palatable that way. Right. But this, this, you know, I was on this Rick Burns documentary on New York City, and he was asking about the draft riots. And I said, well, you know, if you don't understand the Irish context to this riot, they started on July 11th, and July 12th was Sunday, and the riot broke out on 13th. Well, July 12th is Orangeman's Day. It's one of the most violent days in Ireland. It still is in Ireland. Most violent day, in the single most violent day in New York City history was July 12th, 1871, when the Orangemen marched down 8th Avenue through an Irish neighborhood, and the Irish got on the roof and threw what they called Irish confetti, bottles and bricks, and the militia panicked and opened fire and killed 66 people. Uh, and that's another forgotten part of history of this ethnic rivalry I remember, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago, the uh, uh, Arab shot a Hasidic student on, uh, in a car on Brooklyn Bridge, and everybody said, we've never seen ethnic tensions like this in New York. I was like, yeah, we have, big time. 
Oh, yeah. Well, what you describe in New York, I think is, it's just, I don't think that we mostly know about that history. We um, don't. It's buried. And the de- degree of racism and kind right. of poor versus poor, I mean, that is not an old, I mean, not a new story by any means. Um, right. You know, that the always you have the the poorest people um, resisting the next level of poor people right. who want to take their jobs and fighting them instead of working together to, you know, address the structural issue. Um, and and you, what you describe in the book is very accurate in that way. Um, yeah. But it's, it, I don't think that people, I don't think we know very much about the draft riots. I'm sure that that's true. Yeah, I mean, it comes as news to some people. I, I was with the book, I was out in L.A., and they had had the Rodney King riots. I mean, this has never happened, you know. The riots started in the 1960s, they said. I said, actually, they started 100 years before that, and they were even more violent than the riots are going through now. The police and, and, and National Guard hasn't lost control of the cities. They're not calling in the regular army. Uh, you know, so the viol- just those acts of how violent the cities were and how poor, it's not the first, this is not the first time we've gone through this. And I mean, that's, you know, one thing is, the strength of the United States and the, and the way our culture can absorb people, that we did get past that. Uh, and we did take these foreign elements and absorb them. So there is hope, I think. I don't like to be a pessimist about the future because I just became a grandfather. So. <laughs> well, so I'm just curious, like a- after, you know, after your book closes, um, right. what actually did happen to quell the riots? And, um, you know, aside from the military taking it over what what happened next you know did it did the draft um yeah. uh, start back up and people actually went uh no they actually passed the city was so um freaked out they passed a, a bond issue to raise money so they could pay you know the, the thing about the draft was if you were drafted you had to go well you could pay 350 dollars not to go which was a lot of money then a lot a, of money uh, like a long shaman's annual wage, or you could hire a substitute to right. go in your place, which is what J.P. Morgan did and Teddy Roosevelt's father and Grover Cleveland. Uh, so that they felt, you know, it was a poor man's war. There was this resentment that, you know, I, I can't pay this for anything. I have to go fight for this in a, in a war that really doesn't affect me. Uh, so they did try to correct that afterwards. And the other thing was, they, one of the things they started draft was because the the three-year volunteer thing was coming up, and they thought a lot of people would leave the army, and that they would have to fill. And most people didn't; they stayed in the Union Army, including large numbers of Irishmen. Right, there were a lot. Yeah, there were regiments of Irish. Yeah, the Irish uh, Brigade. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was funny because I I got beat up by a lot of people for this book, and one was um, uh, I went to an Irish veterans group, and they hated the book. <laughs> said, You're writing about bums and prostitutes, and you know. And what about this? I said, well, actually, there is one soldier, but if you want to write that book, go ahead. <laughs> That's not the book I wrote. You know, there's a whole world you can, you know, you write a book about heroism on the battlefield. That's not what I'm writing about. Right, but you, but you, their view was you made Irish people look bad. Is yeah, that it? Yeah, you know, I was a self-loathing Irishman. That's right. what I was told. So, uh, right. you know, we, betraying the tribe. <laughs> right, but and see, novelists, the thing about a novelist is you don't belong to any tribe. Well, but you belong you, to your characters, right? And but I, I think that what you said earlier 
makes sense to me. And that is you're trying to use your imagination to understand these people that you can't otherwise know. So you place yourself in the historical period that they lived in and try to imagine what it was like based on the knowledge that you can pick up from historical record. So if you don't take the honest view, then you've written essentially a romance. You know, wouldn't, I mean, you're... it, it still could be fiction, but people do write fiction that isn't, um, that whitewashes history. You know, you can do right. that, but right. it makes sense to that. I mean, I understand why they were mad at you, but right. you're, you're exactly right. I'm just writing about individuals. You know, I, I invented some of these people and it was one of the things that's like writing a novel is like having a psychotic experience, right? I invented these people. And then I was I was working at Time Warner at the time. I used to get up at five thirty and get to work early and write about them. And I, there were days I said, you know, I could be in a mental institution. I'm spending all this time and energy on people who didn't exist, and I can hear them in my head. They're real for me. Uh, and you know, that's you write a character-driven novel. It's all about these it's about these people's lives. It's not about the big historical picture. It's just about this little, you know, a maid, uh, a cop. All these people in that moment, what were, the, what were their lives like? What did they see? What did they hear? What did they smell? What did they know about the world that they were in? And some of them know very little about it. So, so that to me is the, that's the joy of writing a novel is, you know, what is it to be human? That's, that's what a novel is. It's not a history. It's like going to an image. What was it like to be human at this time and place? Right. Now, so did you, um, once the book was done, did those characters go away or did they stay with you? They're still with me. <laughs> but, you know, I finished that book and I wanted to write a trilogy. Of, but they told me, you know, no more 600-page books. It didn't sell enough to justify another book. It sold well, but... And I said, I can't take another 10 years to write a book and I'm going to run out of time. So I invented this... I wrote a trilogy of detective novels, which Fordham is also uh, reprinting, about a, a New York detective, Fenton Dunn. And it really is about New York history from 1918 to 1958 through the Second World War and uh, eugenics and uh, American Nazism. Hmm. Well, that, I will be interested in those too. I think, yeah. I yeah. love New York. I love Los New York and Los Angeles, I think two of my favorite places. Yeah. And I think fiction is a better way of understanding those cities in some ways. Um, I mean, I've read a lot of nonfiction too, but I think the uh, it is, it's wonderful to transport yourself into the place and to feel it in some way. Well, it's really interesting you say that because my hero as a writer is Raymond Chandler. <laughs> That's why I wound up writing a detective series. I, Raymond Chandler is just an amazing writer. You know, he's not a he's not a mystery writer. He's a great American writer. Yeah. Uh, and his feel for Los Angeles, you know, at that time where it was the Golden City and Hollywood, and he understands that the, at the center of the apple is a rotten core. <laughs> and he gets right to it. His characters are amazing. Nobody ever wrote dialogue like him. All the hard-boiled detective novels, they never match Raymond Chandler. No, he was a terrific writer. And, uh, you know, a lot of the... Well, it's almost impossible to pick out one that I like better than another, but I think he was terrific. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I would copy... Because that's one thing that I do. I took a writing course, but one way I taught myself was I'd read novels and I'd copy out the paragraphs and the dialogue that I really thought were good and study them and say, you know, what makes this work? And I could copy pages of Chandler. What makes this work? 
why is this why is this different from so much else? You know, what is the secret? Uh, and try to try to find out how you do that. I, I I've been offered to teach writing courses, and I said, essentially, a writing course is you just keep reading. Um, you know, and I don't know what to teach. You know, how do you get into a character? I don't know. They just came to me. <laughs> you sit in a room and you think, and sometimes these characters come to you, and then they take over. And they, I never wrote a book where I knew what the ending was going to be. I had no idea when I started Banished Children that, you know, where it was going to go. Because as I was saying before, part of the fun of writing novels is not knowing. I want it to be with these people, and they don't know what's happening. So I can't know what's happening. Right. No, I think I think I've I've talked to a lot of writers, and I think you know many writers have different ways of approaching it. But the idea of it's the characters, and there's something right. that happens with them that you're trying to get at, and right. they then become the solution to whatever that problem is. But you don't right. know how it's going to come out. Otherwise, yeah. what would be the fun? Right. Well, you know, uh, I never write outlines. Some people find that hard to believe, but I don't. But my classmate at Manhattan College, he sat in front of me in English class, was James Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he talks a lot about outlines. So, I mean, whatever works for you, by the way. That's the other thing. I, I can't, People want the five rules of good writing. With, as far, There are no rules as far as I'm concerned. I couldn't teach them. Uh, you invent your own rules. And you read other people, but you don't want to copy other people. You want to be some, something original. You don't want to follow these five rules and not write novels. That would be really bad and boring yeah no i think you're right though that reading a lot is and reading widely and letting yourself hear the voices um and and of course some people can write and other people can't write you know there's no way to guarantee that just because you've read a lot and you love writing it means you'll be good but you know the only way to do it is to do it i think right yeah i I agree absolutely that's what i i learned when i was um thinking about writing a novel and said, well, I can't. I didn't really ever study novel writing. I don't know how. And I just said, you know, it was like being on a cliff and saying, I'm going to jump off and see what happens. And uh, I also thought it was like, I started, this is keeping dates, you know. I started on Columbus Day, uh, 1988, I think. Uh, And I said, well, you know, that's a good date to start because I'm setting out into the unknown. I don't know where I'm going to wind up. (laughs) And I finished on a, uh, January 6th, three years, three and a half years later, uh, on the feast of January 6th, the feast of the Epiphany. So, you know, the Epiphany is a rival. Columbus was a blush. So I play these mind games, I guess. <laughs> well, that sounds that sounds very propitious. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to just say that I really like this novel. I think it is okay. really a great read. And uh, I, I've been looking forward to reading your detective novels. I think that yeah, would be a great. lot of fun. They're coming out um, next month. Fordham University bring all three of them out. Good. I will look for those. Well, I want to thank you, Peter, for talking to me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. This has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Peter Quinn about The Banished Children of Eve, his novel of the Civil War in 1863, New York. Thanks again. (music) 